Uh, I hope that you all are doing well. hope you're having a, a, a good morning. And if you've brought your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8. <clears throat> and continuing in, in the book of Nehemiah, what we, what we see is the walls have been built a couple of chapters ago, but that's the, the main event of the book, right? There's, that's what they were leading up to, is the building of the, of the walls. And now the, 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 the transition in the book now has been, since chapter 7, a, a shift of rebuilding the people. The walls have been built, and now it's time to rebuild this people so that they know who they are and they know whose they are that they are the people of God and that this is the city of God. And if you are the people of God and this is the city of God, then there are ways and there's, there's things that we are to do to show that we are the people of God. We are to be a holy and separate people. So in chapter 8, there was a gathering of all the people of God. You remember in front of the, the water gate. One man, they came as one man in unity, and there under this platform stood Ezra and 13 other dudes, and he read the scripture to them. He read the word of God to, to all the people for hours, for roughly six hours, they read the scripture. And this was the seventh month of the year of the Jewish calendar, which meant that this is the holiest month of the year for them. It's when they celebrated the most or their feasts, three out of the seven. They gathered to hear Ezra read God's word. And then the Levites came after Ezra and they interpreted God's word to them so that they would understand clearly God's word. And all the people responded in humble agreement. Amen and amen. They blessed the Lord. They responded in humble worship with their heads bowed to the ground and their hands raised up high. Because they began to understand and know their God. They began to understand and know His character, His will for them, His promises, his law, and how he has fulfilled his promises to them. Verses 1 through 8 is truly an amazing scene. An amazing scene of the necessity for God's people to be close to God's word. To be close to God's word. We need God's word. We truly need to see and to know the Lord. And how we know the Lord is through His Word. And He has given us His Word so that we can truly see Him and how we can be reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. This morning in our passage, it goes right along with the same event. So remember last week's, if you have to real quick, you can read it real quick. Just got to understand, it goes right on what happens last week. And what we see in this week's passage is more of the people's corporate reaction and response to the faithful proclamation of God's word 
to them. And as the assembly was closing that day, the gathering that was closing that day, what was very clear, what we'll read in just a moment, is that God's word wrecked the people. It wrecked them. It wrecked them into a pit of grief and sorrow and weeping. But that's not where they stay. Because what we will see and what we understand is that a godly leader, such as Nehemiah and Ezra and these faithful Levites, they turn God's people to God's word because God's word also brings life and joy. Let's look to Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 9. Probably the shortest passage in all of our study in Nehemiah. Verse 9. In Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites all so the Levites calmed all the people saying be quiet for this day is holy do not be grieved and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. One of the greatest, and maybe one of the greatest, but a great criticism of Christianity for many unbelievers is that when they see Christians, they believe that Christians are boring, uptight, unhappy, joyless, prudish, and legalistic, and along with a whole host of other labels and names. Now, in some sense, when it comes to outright sin, when it comes to outright sin that the, that the scripture specifically names, then yeah, if the reason why we are boring, prudish, and legalistic and maybe seemingly unhappy is because we do not participate in them or condone them, then, then okay, we'll take, that, we'll take that label. For we know that we have been saved from the slavery of sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. So if we get one of those labels because of that reason, then, 
spineless and there's just not much you can do about it. It is what it is. However, there still at least is the stereotype that Christians do not seem to be happy or joyful. Maybe just angry all the time. Maybe you visited some churches where it seems that most everyone is unhappy, where it seems like they don't want to even be there themselves. I know I've been in services like that. I've led services like that. Dull, sleepy eyes, slumped over, low energy, no singing, distracted, no participation, you know how it goes. So when a watching world sees joyless, unhappy Christians, no wonder they say, what is the point? Why would you be a part of something if you are so unhappy? The guilt-driven church is motivated by guilt and shame, promoted by guilt-driven sermons. To do better and to be better. So no wonder it's so joyless. But is that really true biblical Christianity? Is that really true about the Christian life? Are we, are we to just be miserable? Are we just to eke our way through life? Or do we, are we to be constantly driven by our guilt and unhappy and joyless? Are we just the frozen chosen? The Puritans were no stranger to these kinds of accusations by outsiders, who to them, the Puritans, looked cold, judgmental, and prudish, as they were abstaining from sin and pursuing holiness, purity, and their preaching went after holiness and the holiness of God's people. But what the critics fail to understand is that the Puritans knew a joy that they could never fathom. They knew a joy that they could never fathom, a joy that is deep that comes from a, a well of living waters. It's a joy that is deep that comes from living waters because it's a joy that's found only in the Lord through his word, through trusting in Christ for salvation alone and being obedient to God's word. They understand that deep joy was connected very tightly, very closely to holiness. Holiness was promoting their joy. And when they thought about the grace of God, holiness was their response to pursue. The central theme of this passage this morning, if you haven't, if you didn't catch it in our reading, is joy. 
They command the people to be joyful. A joy that is driven by holiness. Despite the overwhelming temptation to be grieved and sorrowful over their sin and to totally miss joy. The Westminster Catechism of Faith, question number one, asks, as most of us know, or we know this already, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Enjoy him. To enjoy him, to delight in him. Man was created to delight and to enjoy God. God would bring smiles to our faces. The very thought of him, the very thought of Christ and the cross, brings joy to us. Throughout the Psalms, we see the very point of the restoration of his people and salvation and renewal and repentance with the Lord is Joy. We read this morning, Psalm 51. Restore the joy of my salvation. Here in our passage, after the scriptures are read to the people, after the scriptures are taught by the Levites, the meaning of the scriptures, their reaction was deep. Their reaction was overwhelming. And it was an overwhelming sense of, of grief and sorrow and weeping. And this morning as we look at the text, I want us to understand that grief and sorrow are certainly legitimate emotions and feelings that we get when we are confronted by God's word for our sin. However, we must not forget that as sinful as we are, we are not to miss the great joy of our salvation and being in Christ Jesus. I haven't even started the main points of the sermon. I'm already yelling at you. But before we talk about joy, we must talk about their grief. We must talk about the grief that they experienced, the the godly sorrow, the godly grief, as the Apostle Paul puts it. And the godly grief that the Apostle Paul is referring to is grief and sorrow that is felt over sin. And I believe that that's what we are seeing here in Nehemiah, chapter 8. They are, they are experiencing the guilt, the grief, and the sorrow for their sin. So after the scriptures were read, were taught, they were explained so that they understood clearly. Look at verse 8. So that they understood clearly God's word, their response was an overwhelming reaction of grief. It says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And why would they weep? Because they were guilty before God of breaking his law. 
A second time, verse 10, Ezra tells them to not be grieved. And then again in verse 11, the Levites calm the people and say, stop grieving, stop weeping, which reinforces the command in verse 9. Or, revert, or tell what that's happening, that they were grieving, that they were in deep sorrow because they heard the scriptures and they were confronted with their sin. This isn't the first time in the Bible that we read how the, the wrecking effects of the scripture upon the hearts of sinners. When King Josiah rediscovered the, the law in the temple, they had lost God's word for generations. And when they rediscovered God's law, they read it and it broke them because they had neglected the scriptures and because of their sin before the Lord was so egregious. And because of it, Josiah brought great reforms to the people and to the nation. Later in Acts chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit comes and, and dwells in the church, there's onlookers that think that these people now crazy. And Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel there on Pentecost. And as he's preaching the gospel, these people were cut to the heart, it says. Cut to the heart. God, like a surgeon, going right at them with his word through the faithful preaching of the gospel to cut them to the heart to the point where they were crying out, what must we do? proclamation of God's word, the understanding along with the conviction by the Holy Spirit grieved them with a response of brokenness. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. They heard God's word and it searched them and it tried them and as Daniel says, they were found wanting, and they were left undone. One of the new verses in the New Testament that we like to point to, telling us the power of God's word, tells us this very thing, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. The word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is what God's word does. It reads us. It knows our thoughts. It knows us. It goes right after us. It knows the intentions of our heart, which means it knows the motives of our heart. It knows the sins of our minds and of our hearts. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Brothers and sisters, I think it's very clear that the word of God cut them like a sword and that it pierced their souls, exposing every one of their sin individually and collectively, that they were undone before knowing that God was holy and that they were not. Their great need for the 
Lord was ever before them. Nehemiah didn't see fit at this point to tell us those sins and what they were, and we'll deal with those coming later in Nehemiah. But one thing's for sure is that if you are a Christian following Christ, then the Holy Spirit who indwells now in you along with the Word of God, we are being convicted of the reality of our sin and our great need for grace. God's Word draws us to himself, convicting us of our sin in our great need for grace. It is a sword that cuts. The word of God reads us. It reads our hearts even as we are reading it. It is reading us. As they saw themselves that day as sinners, as lawbreakers, those who were more concerned with themselves than honoring God. Can you remember Can you remember those times that when you were a child or teenager and you did something wrong? You broke a rule in your home. You took something that wasn't yours. You lied about it or lied about something or you you broke something that you should have never had in the first place. And you knew you were in trouble. Like, the gig is up. There's no way of getting around this. Your parents find out. You hear what they have to say. You see in their face their disappointment and maybe even hurt. And what happens if you are a loving child and you love your parents and respect your parents, then what happens to you? Your body language changes along with them. Your shoulders hung down, eyes look down, your head begins to fall and and bow in shame and guilt, guilty before your parents. And maybe even some weeping was involved. Not just the feeling of guilt, But the realization that your obedience has put you in a place, your disobedience, excuse me, has put you in a place that you do not want to be. That's not a fun place, is it? I was there often. The word of God often shows us our sin. And it puts us in that place, doesn't it? Where we know we are guilty And we know that if it wasn't for Christ, we would deserve the just punishment of our sin for sinning against a holy and righteous God. This is the type of guilt they understood that day. The type of shame that led them to to weep. A, A helplessness and deserving punishment. They deserved punishment, not blessing, not safety, not more security, certainly not a new city, but destruction and judgment and separation from a holy and righteous God. That grief overtook them and they wept. Grief isn't the main point of the passage, and we're going to get to joy in just a moment, but we cannot divorce ourselves from the reality of 
grief and sorrow and the anguish of our sin as it is exposed by the Word of God. We can't, we can't turn from that. I sense for myself, and I believe that for many of us, that if we are not careful, we too often can become so callous to God's Word and not even know it. And, and I don't mean callous in a way that you lose interest of God's word or you no longer believe in its authority or inerrancy or inspiration. Yeah, we got those down and we believe that it's the word of God, but we fail to allow and let the word of God, in a sense, penetrate deep into our, our hearts and reveal our sin to us and show it to us. We read it more like a newspaper for information or out of obligation and not for God's word to do its work in us to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ. And I believe for the very reason we do that is because we do not want to be found out. And I get it. We don't want to be found guilty. We long for peace when there should be a war within our souls. I didn't come up with that line. One of, my, one of the commentaries I read. We long for peace when there should be war. We want the good. We want the blessing. We want the pleasure. We don't want the pain. It's easy then in our hearts to turn away from the scriptures, from the church, and from other Christians because we naturally do not want to feel like we're being ridiculed. Yet in that grief, in that conviction over our sin, the word of God is doing so much more than making you feel terrible. It's doing so much more because it's the kindness of God that it's meant to lead you to repentance. The conviction is to lead us to repentance, which again is what the Apostle Paul said is godly grief. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul goes after the people for their sin. He goes after them for their toleration of open, blatant, disgusting sin that was tolerated among them. He goes after them for their abuse of the, of the spiritual gifts and the abuse of the Lord's Supper. But in 2 Corinthians, he commends them for their repentance in when he confronted them in 1 Corinthians. This is what I said about godly grief. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I regret it. For I see that letter grieved you. Though only for a while, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. A godly grief into repenting. Verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. 
That should instantly tell us we don't want that. Worldly grief is the kind of grief that we've heard it said, you're only upset because you got caught. That's worldly grief. And if you would have got away with it, you would have been perfectly fine to continue to live the way that you wanted to live. Worldly grief is not grief for offending a holy and righteous God. Worldly grief does not produce repentance. It produces hiding. It produces arrogance. It produces anger. It produces a, a guilt that, is, that drives just to be better because better is better. But godly grief, as the Apostle Paul tells us in God's word in 2 Corinthians, that godly grief leads us to repentance. And that repentance, listen, brings salvation without regret. So this thing that we want to run from, and we try to hide ourselves and shield us from God's word is what leads us to repentance and salvation without regret. If you are living without regret, does that, you know what that means? It means you're not hiding from anything. You're not scared for anybody to come up and accuse you of anything because guess what? Here it is. I'm not hiding. I've dealt with it, praise God, without regret. Do not run from the work of the word of God as these people did. They stayed there. Don't become callous to the scriptures that it will have no effect in your heart for godly grief that has a great effect of producing repentance. Repentance that leads to salvation without regret to joy. Grieving of sin is important. However, in this passage, we don't want to miss the command, and I say command because they're commanding it, to be joyful. It may seem contrary to the previous point. It may seem like these two don't go together. There's a season for grieving. There's a season for rejoicing. But there is a command to the people to be joyful. And this command to be joyful and to rejoice is, is not ignoring sin or the grief for their sin. Because once again, joy doesn't contradict holiness. Joy produces holiness, and holiness produces joy. I saw on a bumper sticker this week, it said, Don't Prolong Joy. So guess what the title of this sermon is? Don't Prolong Joy. When I saw that bumper sticker, of course, I'm already mulling over my head in my head this text, and I was like, this is what this passage, I think, is really telling us. It's not to, to prolong or to overlook joy. Grief has its place. But we don't want to remain in that place too long where we don't 
experience joy. You know, I think the temptation for us, or at least I know it's been for me and maybe for you, is that we want to stay in the place of sorrow and grief. Because in, one, in some weird way, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel spiritual when we feel guilty. It makes us feel like I'm serving my punishment that, I, that I'm due because of my sin. That we need to feel guilty in some way so that we would feel justified for the forgiveness of our sin. As if the punishment that we are afflicting in ourselves and continuing in grief and sorrow and guilt will somehow appease God. So functionally, in our self-loathing, we are attempting to earn our justification rather than relying on the work of Christ. Their leaders that day led them to be holy in joy, to not prolong the joy of this day. Don't miss, people, the joy of the Lord. Don't miss the joy of seeing the Lord, the joy of hearing God's word, the joy of his mercy, the joy of his love for his people. It says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Don't just be joyful, but rejoice and party. Verse 10, go your way. Eat the fat and the drink, the sweet wine. Send portions to everyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In verse 11, the Levites also call them to be holy and not to weep, but to rejoice. The joy of the Lord is connected to the, holy, the holiness of that day. Well, what was so holy about that day? Well, certainly it was the reading of God's word, but do you remember that I said that this was the first day of the seventh month? The feasts were upon them, particularly the Feast of Booths, which we will talk about next week, was upon them. This was a festival not of mourning and weeping. This was a festival of joy. This is a festival of rejoicing. And so for them not to rejoice and to find joy in God would be heaping on themselves more transgression for what they were already weeping for. Ezra tells them, and I believe it's Ezra saying this in verse 10, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. A familiar sounding passage, right? Well, what is the joy of the Lord. What is Ezra referring to here when he says the joy of the Lord? What is the Lord's joy? What is the Lord's good pleasure? The Lord's good pleasure, the Lord's joy, God's joy, 
has been in to move the heart of the Babylonian king, Cyrus, to allow the Jews to return to the land and rebuild their temple. The joy of the Lord has been to inspire and to lead Ezra, the Bible teacher, and Nehemiah to come back and to restore and rebuild the city of God and the people of God. It has been God's joy and God's pleasure to protect them from their enemies and to provide for them in every way that they needed. The joy of the Lord is to do good for his people. It was God's good pleasure to do good for his people. The Lord delighted in restoring and rebuilding his people. God is keeping his promises to his people. We see his holiness there. God is being holy by, by keeping his promises. And that fulfilling his promises, doing good to his people, is to do what? Give joy and to show his joy. When it says God's joy is to be their strength, their strength is God's joy in saving restoring and protecting them. I think we often read that thinking that that joy is about us. That it's about our joy. No, this is about us seeing what God delighted in doing. And what God delighted in doing, then that's our strength. That is our refuge. That is our hope. And he's inviting the people, come, come participate in God's joy. Come participate in what God has delighted himself to do for you as a people. God is holy, but he is joyful. He is the pinnacle of joy. He is the source of all joy. And as God's people, they are being invited to delight in him and the, the pinnacle of joy. Do not believe the caricature of God that he is often pictured as an angry old man waiting to destroy and punish his people. Like an uncaring, abusive father. That is so far from the Bible. That is so far from the truth. God, who could be happier than God? He who is perfectly holy. He who is perfectly satisfied and sufficient within the Trinity, lacking nothing needs nothing from any of his creation. He created this world, and he created you, and he created all of mankind to share in his glory, to see his glory so that we would come in and we would enjoy and delight him for him. Sin isn't being ignored. We are to repent they will repent. They are to repent. But they are also to see even more as we are to see, to come and behold the Lord. 
to enjoy and to delight in him. The feast that was upon them was a time of celebration. A celebration of of looking to see how God took joy in delivering and providing for his people. So Ezra tells them, "Pull pull out the sweet wine. Pull out the good stuff, the stuff you've been holding, the stuff above the stove. Pull out the, 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 pull out the, the fat, right? Bring out those good ribeyes and slap those things on the grill and rejoice in God. Rejoice in the strength of the joy of God of the Lord so that every bite of that ribeye every sip of that sweet wine so that it reminds you of the goodness of God the goodness of your Lord and invite everyone else to be a part that they too may taste it and they may too may enjoy come taste and see That the Lord is good because the Lord is worthy of everyone enjoying him to the fullest. Brothers and sisters, sorrow and grief, as we said, has its place. But when left, it drains energy and it leaves no taste for food. It leaves no taste for good drink or even fellowship. Joy, however, invigorates energy and energizes us. Peace, joy, and strength are the basics for a fruitful Christian life. It's not the accumulation of fame, wealth, or even knowledge, for you can have none of those things and still have a profound sense of of happiness and satisfaction and joy in the Lord. Don't believe so? Read some accounts of the missionaries who tell of faithful believers across the nations who have nothing but God and Christ. Knowing the forgiveness of the Lord, the certainty of his promises presence of the Holy Spirit and the good news of the gospel is what is truly significant in this life. The relentless, the relentless pursuit of pleasure apart from the gospel is a dead end. Sin only leads to grief. Only those who have found the soul-satisfying life of communion with Jesus Christ know this life-giving joy. Let me tell you more of where joy comes from. There's four. First, joy comes from knowing that we are loved. What else could this whole scene of a once exiled people who are sitting under the conviction of the word of God, a people 
who have just been reminded that they have been delivered and now hear that the Lord has not forgotten them and has shown steadfast love to them. They have been reminded that even in their guilt and in their grief, that God loved them. Do you understand when I tell you that the Lord takes joy in those who place their faith in Christ? Do you understand that God is pleased with you? And do you know why God loves you? And do you know why God is pleased with you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves his people. God delights in his people. Therefore, he has provided for his people salvation through his son. You are loved and God delights in you. Not because of you, but because of the righteousness of Christ and what he has done. The penalty has been paid in full. No amount of my guilt and my weeping that I can give will ever earn me or gain me a righteousness before God. But in Christ alone, the Lord has bestowed on his people the riches of his glorious inheritance. Knowing that we are loved and we are cherished brings joy. God has loved his people from before the foundation of the world. You know what that tells me again? You've done nothing to earn that love. And yet he loves us and has loved us and has provided for us. He has loved us more than we could ever express. And his love is seen in the greatest of way at the cross. No greater love is this, that one who would lay down his life for a friend. Brothers and sisters, knowing that we are loved gives us joy. Second, joy comes from knowing that we have in knowing what we have in the fellowship with the Lord is the best. Knowing what we have in fellowship with the Lord is the best. Christians more than anyone else in this world, should know what real joy is. Because of Jesus Christ and in our relationship with him, we now have a purpose, we now have an understanding of reality. Pleasures in this life, good food, good drink, friends, family, fellowship, all of these things point to the goodness of God, of our heavenly Father. Everything else 
all materialism, all these things that we are tempted to go after, that we are attracted to by our eyes, are to be seen as nothing when we are fixed upon Christ. Because when we are fixed with Christ, and in fellowship with Christ, we know that that is the best. Great joy is to be had in those who have fellowship with the Savior. Third, joy comes from knowing the sovereign God. What those people assembled that day could see was not only their sin, but they also could look back on their lives and know that the gracious hand of God had been guiding them, had been guarding them, had been governing them, even though they had no concept to recognize that. Do you have a sense of God's guiding hand in your life? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 27 through 30. Brothers, when I read that, sisters, when I read that, do you have a great sense of your life that God has been guiding you? Are you lacking joy? Then sit down a while this Lord's Day and pray and reflect on your life. And you will see how the Lord has been leading and has been guiding you with his hand for your good. He who loves you and by his sovereign hand and his sovereign grace, he is conforming you into the image of his son. The very reason you are here this morning is very much the proof of God's guiding hand in your life. Now, doesn't that produce joy? Doesn't it produce joy being able to see how God has been working all things out for your good and for his glory. And lastly, joy comes from knowing that the best is yet to come. The event that day in Nehemiah 8 wasn't just for them to reflect back, but they were also to look forward because God had preserved this people for a purpose. For a reason. The great temptation for us is to, again, stay stuck in the, the mire, the pit of, of our sin, and to always grieve and to never see the joy that is set before us. And joy that is present, is for, joy is for the present, and joy is also to preserve us to the end. Back in 2 Corinthians, this time in chapter 4. It says this, it says, For we do not lose heart, 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Meaning life is getting really hard. Physically, it is getting tough. But spiritually, we see God's faithfulness day after day after day. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction. He's not belittling pain. He's not belittling suffering. He's not belittling living in a fallen world. He's putting in comparison to all eternity. And the joy that's in eternity. And that God is sovereign. We just saw joy in knowing the sovereignty of our God. And that it's for our good. He's using this light momentary affliction to do what? To prepare. To prepare us. For what? An eternal weight of glory. Which means it's a glory you can't lift. An eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For joy is not found in the present, in what we can see. For joy is in the things of what we believe, in our faith, and what the Word of God teaches us. For things that are seen are transient. You know, a trans, transient is the person who, who lives in Savannah in the winter and then goes up to Boston in the, in the, in the uh, summer. They got no home. They just make their way everywhere. People who have no home, that's transient. These things that are seen, these things, transient, don't last. But the things that are unseen... Things by faith that we believe, they are eternal. Brothers and sisters, we are not just eking our way through this. We are not just getting by, but we are enduring with joy by keeping our eyes set on the things that are unseen. Because we know that there is an eternal weight of glory that is coming that is beyond all comparison. And there we will experience and we will see everlasting joy as much as this creature could know. We will experience joy now in the unseen but joy fully realized in what is coming. Fight for joy. Fight for joy, knowing that the best things are to come. Brothers and sisters, as we close, I know I went long. What can I say? What I want you to hear this morning is yes, Always be repenting of your sin. 
grieve over your sin, recall your sin to God, and agree with him that you have sinned against him and that it is treachery against him. But do not to forget, do not be quickly to forget and to be joyful and to enjoy God for his love and for his forgiveness. Be happy and remember the good news of the gospel. Don't forget that it was the joy of the Lord to send his son. And that is our strength. He sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins, so that a sinner like you and a sinner like me could be forgiven. Not to remain down, not to remain anxious or fearful for wrath or always grieving, but so that we would enjoy him. And as verse 12 says, they went away rejoicing and they began the party and they began sharing with everyone else. And if you look at verse 12, you'll see why. Because once again, they understood the word of God. Do you understand the word of God this morning? So that when the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice. You understand clearly what that means. Father, we thank you for your word again. Lord, we thank you for joy. Joy that is not found in the things that are seen, these transient things, but in the unseen. Lord, would you have in each and every one of us deep roots in gospel-centered, Christ-exalting joy. Give us joy. Lord, let us rejoice in you always. In all circumstances, let us rejoice. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and rejoice. May we gather in rejoicing. May we sing in rejoicing. May we give in rejoicing in joy because our joy is deeply rooted in the gospel the forgiveness of sins that we've we've had in Christ and the promise of the eternal joy that we will have in him that one day will be fully realized father help us to keep our eyes affixed on the things that are above pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.